0: to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co.
1: Good morning. We are glad you are with us this morning. I want to tell you, we are living in an awesome, awesome time. And you may look around and think, where is he living But I'll tell you why we're living in such an awesome time. It has to do with what Pastor Matt said at the beginning. We are living in an awesome time because we can look forward to next Sunday. 2,000 some odd years ago, they didn't have next Sunday to look forward to. They had an eternity separated from God, as Ephesians says, without Christ and without hope. But today, we have next Sunday. We live in awesome times. So, Continuing in Hebrews 9 this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. And in honor of the word of God, would you please stand with me? Now that you've gotten seated and comfy. Uh, but Ephesians 9 verses 1 through 12. Oh, what did I say? Ephesians. It's my favorite book. So, <laughs> yes. Thank you. Hebrews. Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 12. and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenants. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you will use your word as only you can to change our hearts, to change our lives. Father, we place ourselves in your hands this morning to do with us as you please. And Father, we pray that this morning will be a time of edification for us and a time of glorifying you. To your name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you. you. may be seated. You know, up to this point, uh, the writer of Hebrews has spent a lot of time comparing just about everything to Jesus. Uh, the prophets, the angels, uh, Moses, Aaron, the Old Covenant, the Levitical priesthood, etc., etc. And through it all, he shows how Jesus is superior to all of these things. But keep in mind that uh, as he's showing that Jesus is superior to all these things, he never denigrates any of these things. Uh, And by denigrate, what I mean is he never looks down upon them or talks in an insulting way of them. Rather, he actually exalts these things as good and beneficial within their design purposes. Because think about it for a moment. If I wanted to convince you that I am of superior intelligence. I am superior in fatherhood. I'm superior in manliness. How would I do it? I would say compare me to this guy. <laughs> you know, it's it's not hard to see how I'm superior to this guy when it comes to fatherhood. It's not hard to see how I'm superior to this guy when it comes to intelligence or just overall manliness. See, when you want to prove the superiority of something, you compare it against the best there is. So if all these things that the writer of Hebrews has been comparing Jesus to are useless or purposeless or just plain bad, then telling us that Jesus is better than all these things isn't really saying much. It's not really saying much. See, God designed, he created, he established all of the things that the writer of Hebrews has been, as, has been comparing Jesus to. So, rather than looking at the old covenants and the prophets and Moses and Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, rather than looking upon those and dismissing them as useless or bad, rather, we should marvel at how God used these things to set the stage to show us the glory and superiority of his Son. It's because all those things were so awesome that we can see how awesome Jesus is when compared to all the other things God has done. That is the superiority of Christ. Now, before I get to preaching, I want to do some teaching, okay? Um, as we read through this, uh, we get a glimpse we got a glimpse of the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to build uh, and to outfit with the, the different furniture, the different implements of worship. And much can and has been said about these, these different pieces of furniture, but I'm not going to take much time talking uh, about how each of these implements of worship represents a specific truth about Jesus. Um, one reason, well, very simply, is the Bible really doesn't say much about how each piece specifically represents something about Jesus. Uh, Now, if the Bible doesn't say it, I can't teach it as absolute truth. Now, do I think these things can be a wonderful picture about certain things about Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. They can be a wonderful picture of certain things about Jesus. You know, the the lampstand, the table, the bread, the altar of incense. They can make some wonderful pictures about some things about Jesus. But can I teach that they absolutely represent these things? I can't. Uh, It seems nitpicky, but the thing is, when we start playing loose with what the Bible specifically says, or in this case does not say, When we play loose with that and what we think it may mean we open the room we open room for error Uh, let me give an example take the lampstand i've heard that it represents jesus as the light of the world i've heard that since the lampstand was the only source of light in the holy place that as long as christians are in christ we are the light of the world another way I've heard it put is that uh, the lampstand, it was made of a central shaft with six branches coming off of it, and these six branches represent man because six is the number of man, and Jesus as a central staff makes seven, and seven is the number of completion. Therefore, it means that we are only complete when we are in Christ. Now, which of these does the Bible say is the correct interpretation of the lampstand? All of them? None of them? It says nothing. doesn't say anything about what the lampstand represents so that's why it can be dangerous to take things like this and teach them as absolute truth saying this is what it represents because you can make anything represent anything else as long as you get creative enough second reason I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, talking about those things well basically if you read these verses, God apparently did not see it as necessary to have the writer of Hebrews go into all of this. Uh, he didn't tell the writer of Hebrews, hey, go tell, him how, each, tell how, how each one of these things represents something about Jesus. Um, we're into expositional preaching here, and expositional preaching seeks to focus on the text at hand and bring out or exposit what is there, not what is not there. Now, since I have limited time this morning, I wanna walk through what the writer of Hebrews was trying to communicate by what he said, not by what he didn't say. And this isn't to say that in expositional preaching, you can't cross-reference or expound on ideas present in a text when you're preaching through it, but the cross-references and the expounding ideas uh, need to have something to do with the points of the text. And the point of the text this morning isn't about how each of these things represents something about Jesus. If it was, it would be there. So, last thing, I'm just going to skim over the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, Again, with limited time, I want to get right to the point of the passage. I'll only talk about the layout of the tabernacle as far as the writer of Hebrews does. And there is an awesome history lesson there. I think it's an awesome history lesson, because I love history, and I would love to go into it, but I don't have time this morning. So all of that just to to say, if you come to me and say, man, you you missed a chance, you should have talked about this. That's why I didn't talk about that this morning, okay? All right. Now that the teaching part is done, I can start the sermon. All right. Verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2 tells us, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. Uh, When we say tabernacle, that literally means means tent. So when we talk about the tabernacle that God had Moses um, prepare, build, it means tent, tabernacle, tent. So the writer of Hebrews calls that an earthly place of holiness, uh, or perhaps you're Version says an earthly sanctuary uh, for the old covenant, and this is in contrast, as we're going to see, uh, to the heavenly sanctuary and the new covenant. So, in, in verses two and three, we see that the tabernacle consisted of two tents. Uh, immediately within the tabernacle was the first section. Uh, this was the outer chamber, and the writer of Hebrews identifies this as the holy place, and he reminds his audience the who he is writing this letter to, of the very well-known furnishings of this room. Remember, he's writing to Hebrews, who would have already been uh, well-versed in what all of this was. So he's just skimming over it. Um, He reminds his audience of the well-known furnishings of this outer room, uh, which are described in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. So inside this first room, the lampstand, the table on which the showbread was arranged, and finally the altar of incense. And the lampstand, as we already talked about, uh, had it was one central shaft, six branches that come off from the side of it, and they built it according to God's very detailed instructions in Exodus 25. Uh, and then the priest would keep this lamp supplied with oil so that it never went out. The light on this lampstand, or the menorah, that's what the menorah is, uh, the light on this, the lights on this lampstand never went out. They burned continuously because the priest made sure of it by always keeping the oil in the lamp. Give me oil for my lamp, keep it burning, burning, burning. Yeah, that. It popped in my head and then it popped out of my mouth. So the next item on the table, well, or the next item was the table of showbread. And the reason it was called—have you guys ever wondered what is showbread? It's like at the 4-H fair when you do baking, and this is my showbread. It's not what it was. Uh, it was called showbread because of God's command in Exodus twenty-five, verse thirty, when He said, "You shall set the bread of the presence, the bread of the presence, on the table before Me regularly." In other words, it was bread that was always before God, shown before God. It was the table, the the bread of the presence, and twelve loaves were placed on the table every Sabbath and only the priests serving in the tabernacle were allowed to eat it. So they would set these 12 loaves on the table on the Sabbath, and then before the next Sabbath, the priests could then take it and eat it, but they had to eat it in a particular holy place because that bread was sacred or set apart to the Lord. And then lastly, the golden altar of incense sat immediately in front of the veil, separating the outer room from the inner room. And we see God giving them detailed instructions on how to build this in Exodus 30. And so every morning and evening, when the priests came into the holy place to keep the lampstand burning, they also refreshed the incense for this altar. So it was constantly going. So the Old Testament uh, tells us where this table of, this altar of incense was, uh, how the priests were to deal with it. And part of it was that it... it that cloud from the incense helps cover the priest approach as he passed through the curtain on the day of atonement which we'll talk about in a minute so the writer of hebrews tells us that he tells us about all these different pieces of furniture but then he says this of all these of these things we cannot now speak in detail we're saying you know i don't have time to go into this so this is what is in there but this isn't the point he is saying i'm not going to go into all the details of this But I do still want to make some general observations about this. I I don't want to just gloss over it because these are some awesome things in this passage. Uh, The holy place, were where the priests had fellowship with God on behalf of the people. Uh, This was symbolized, one, by those 12 loaves of bread. Those 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel there before the presence of God. And eating was an intimate show of fellowship. So on the behalf of these 12 tribes, the priest was fellowshipping with God. Uh, The light represented God's revelation of himself, his illuminating presence. And then the altar of incense symbolized the prayer of God's people, as we see incense and prayer linked often in the Old Testament. But I do want to briefly say something about how we can see a reflection of Jesus as a picture in these things. I'm not saying that this is why God did this, and so that's what it means, because God doesn't say that. But I do think there are some wonderful word pictures in there that we can see as a reflection of Christ. John 1, 4, 9 says, In him, in Jesus, in Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And also, as I just mentioned, how in the Old Testament, prayer is linked with incense. It is Jesus's intercessory prayers that sustain us in God's presence, as we actually talked about back in Hebrews 7.25, where it says that Jesus stands constantly making intercession for us. So there are some wonderful pictures that we can see as a reflection of Christ in those things, but I'm going to leave it just as that. They're wonderful pictures. John 1, 14 sums all of this up nicely. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, the literal word means he tabernacled among us. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's in Christ that we have fellowship with God, just as the priest of Israel had fellowship with God in and by means of the tabernacle. There was, however, a huge difference between the fellowship that the priest had with God and the fellowship that we enjoy with God through Christ. And we can start to see this in verse 3. It says behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Behind the second curtain. The priest served in God's presence in a way through the items in the holy place. But God himself dwelt in the next room, which was separated by a thick curtain or veil. And this inner room of the tabernacle was the most holy place. So the place where the priests would serve day in and day out with the showbread and the altar of incense and the lampstand. This was separated from the most holy place, which is where God's presence dwelt. It was separated by a veil, a curtain, that was two inches thick. In other words, it was a heavy barrier. And in the center room was the Ark of the Covenant, which most of us probably know only because of Indiana Jones. (laughs) That's probably where most of us think uh, when we think Ark of the Covenant. Um, And this actually served not as a weapon for the Nazis to use, but it served as the footstool of God's throne and as it says here on top of the ark were two cherubim two angels uh, and between this is where God's glory dwelt uh, and in the ark he goes into he does tell us what was inside the ark um, the urn of manna Aaron's staff that budded when God said hey Aaron is my man he is to serve as priest and to prove that he's my man hey Aaron hold up your staff he held up his staff and it budded Blossoms came out of his staff. So that was in there. And then um, tablets on which was written the covenant, or we often think of as on the Ten the Ten Commandments. The tablets of the Ten Commandments were in there. Uh, But again, as he goes on to say, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Is it because they didn't know the details? No, they had the book of Exodus and Leviticus. They knew the details. But well, the writer of Hebrews is saying, but right now I don't have time for that because I want to talk about my main point. I want to get to my main point, the writer of Hebrews is saying. So rather than being concerned with telling how all these implements were used and how they represent specific things about Jesus, he is concerned mainly with what happened in these rooms. He's concerned with what happened in these rooms and on a regular basis, he's, in verse 6, he says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So every day... The priest came into the outer room to serve God, to worship him, to have some sort of a limited fellowship with him um, before the candlelights an incense altar. But direct access to God himself was denied to them. The key thing in this whole description is that curtain, that second curtain. It stood between the priests and God's presence. The whole time that they were in the holy place, doing, fulfilling their priestly duties, they were made aware of two things. God's actual holy presence that was in the next room, and the curtain that kept them from seeing or entering into that holiest place to truly experience his presence. Andrew Murray uh, wrote it this way. The veil was the symbol of separation between a holy God and sinful man. They cannot dwell together. The tabernacle thus expressed the union of two apparently conflicting truths. God called man to come and worship and serve him, and yet he might not come too near. The veil kept him at a distance. Love calls the sinner near. Righteousness keeps him back. The Holy One bids Israel build him a house in which he will dwell, but forbids them entering his presence there. Love calls the sinner near, righteousness keeps him back. And I would add this, what Andrew Murray said. Love calls the sinner near, righteousness and love keeps him back. Because God knew that if a sinner entered his presence, he that person would die. But God's love calls us near, but God's absolute perfect righteousness keeps us back. And this tension was made even more apparent by the one day of the year, the day of atonement, when the high priest actually could go into God's presence. Verse 7 tells us that he entered, only he entered, only on that one day, and only with blood, from the sacrifice to cover his sins and the sins of the people. So far from minimizing the separation between a holy God and his unholy people, that one day emphasized it even more. The day of atonement proclaimed that the way to God was in fact barred to them on any regularly on any regular basis. They didn't go, "Hey, today we get to fellowship with God, although there was an air of celebration, but it also made it very real to them that it's only on this day. Other than this day, we are barred, denied, held back from experiencing the presence of God in our lives. But the Day of Atonement also pointed forward to a day when they would fully be, when the way would fully be opened. It goes on to say in verse 8, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So the whole point of the tabernacle system of worship was on the one hand to show God's intentions and desire to have fellowship with his people, but also showing that the way into this fellowship was not yet open. Key phrase there, not yet There we see the entire Old Testament religion. No, the way to God was not open, it was barred. But thankfully, God didn't leave it at simply not open, but says not yet open. And then verses 9 and 10 complete this uh, look at the earthly sanctuary and the, the whole system of worship attached to it. Verse 9 tells us that according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. As sinners, we have an inner consciousness of guilt. And this inner consciousness of guilt keeps us from drawing near to God. Even as Christians, how many of you sometimes think, I can't ask God to forgive me again for this? How could God ever forgive me? How could, I can't go to God with this. Even as Christians, we struggle with that. Our conscience sometimes keeps us uh, from approaching, from drawing near to God. Sin had that effect in the garden. Adam and Eve hid from God after the fall. And it has the same effect on us. See, this was the biggest problem in the Old Covenant. The curtain in the tabernacle was a barrier erected by God. But there's another barrier within us knowing our guilt we naturally erect our own barrier against god we dread drawing near to his presence we dread seeing him in his holiness and we also dread him seeing us in our sin it says the sacrifices of the old testament cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper they were external rituals rules about food and drink, outward ceremony, regulations. This is the point of verse 10, which talks about regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And this is actually what Pastor Matt uh, has been talking about the past couple of weeks, when in Jeremiah, God says, I will take their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. No longer will they have to teach one another, saying, Know the Lord. That's this time of reformation that he's talking about here. And again, Pastor Matt has covered that, so I'm I'm not going to talk about that a whole lot. See, the Israelites could sacrifice animals day after day after day without having their consciences ever truly cleaned. They could sacrifice animals day after day And never have peace about drawing near to God in his holiness. Until that happened, there could never be the fellowship between God and his people that God desired. F.F. Bruce writes, The really effective barrier to a man or woman's free access to God is an inward and not a material one, not a physical one. It exists in the conscience it is only when the conscience is purified that one is set free to approach God without reservation and offer Him acceptable service and worship. So, without a new heart, without a conscience that has been cleaned, man cannot come near to God. And there is no way for a man to create for himself. A new heart and a clean conscience without those things you cannot come near to God and you are powerless to create those things on our own we are forever doomed to an eternal existence exiled from the presence of God and when you say it like that it doesn't sound that bad uh, I'm exiled from the presence of God No, th- this isn't like being exiled from your homeland where, yeah, I'm never going to see my family again, but decades from now, I will have had time to make new friends, new loved ones, to make a new life for myself. It's not that kind of an exile when it's exiled from the presence of God. To be exiled from the presence of God means to be exiled from the presence of hope, exiled from the presence of love, exiled from the presence of peace, exiled from the presence of joy you will never again experience any of those things because they all find their source in God. Without God, you have none of those things. The writer of Psalms in Psalm 16 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So there we are. There is a barrier between us and God. A barrier that means that for eternity we will be exiled from the presence of God, never to experience joy or peace or hope or love ever again. And then verse 11. But when Christ appeared, but when Christ appeared, It's like the writer of Hebrews is saying, we were exiled from the presence of God by barriers that were impenetrable. But then Jesus came. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with the Latin phrase, vini vidi vici. Uh, You may have heard it. uh, He came, I came, I saw, I conquered. Uh, It's attributed to Julius Caesar. Uh, He was waging war against a particular little clan, kingdom, tribe. He came in swift swift, decisive victory and he said about this victory I came I saw I conquered that's all there was to it and ever since then it's that's when people say I came I saw I conquered they mean it was a swift decisive victory Uh, Petra had a song along those lines but it's called he came he saw he conquered I love it he came he saw he conquered death and well he came he saw he is alive and well he was he is and only he forgives uh, I won't go on with the song. But that's how I feel when I read the beginning of verse 11. All was lost, then Jesus came. I, I think it makes for a very acceptable Tim the Toolman Taylor moment. <laughs> All was lost. All was lost, but then Christ appeared. I love it. And just so you know, I'm not the only one who thinks this way. Turn over to Matthew 21. Beginning in verse 1. And when he, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means Savior or come save us. So they recognized Jesus had come to save them by evidence by their shouts of Hosanna. And as Pastor Matt pointed out, they simply misunderstood what he came to save them from. But look at how excited they were. He has appeared. This is why we live in such great times. He has appeared, not he will appear. He has appeared. And there were shouts of Hosanna. To where the Pharisee said, hey, Jesus, tell this rabble to be quiet. And Jesus said, you know what? Even if they're quiet, the rocks and stones will shout out in praise. You cannot stop the praise that rightly belongs to God. The King has come. The Savior has appeared. When Christ appeared. When you read that verse in Hebrews, in Hebrews 9, when you read that verse, I'm going to ask you a question. Does a cry of Hosanna well up in your soul? My Savior, Hosanna, Christ has appeared. Does a cry of Hosanna well up in your soul? The King has arrived. My great high priest has appeared. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, we remember today as Palm Sunday, the, the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem as its eternal and soon-to-be conquering king, even though in the eyes of most of them he appeared to be conquered. But make no mistake, he was the conquering king. We are familiar with the shouts of the people crying out, Hosanna. We know also that those cries of adoration would soon enough turn to shouts of condemnation. We read what the writer of Hebrews says about when Christ appeared. In verses 11 and 12, he says that it was by his sacrificial death that Jesus has done what all the sacrifices of the Old Testament could not do. He did not merely cover our sins like the high priests and those sacrifices, he took them upon himself, removing them by his death on the cross. I want you to think of the most terrible thing you have ever done. That dark secret that maybe haunts you and the great truth that if people really knew that they would condemn you out of hand. God who knows that secret and who does see that sin has placed it upon his own son so that you will not be condemned. And that is why when you see things like Justin or Kevin or Josiah, that you will not find that condemnation here either. God does not condemn you. And neither do we. Your sin has been placed upon Jesus so that you will not be condemned. And this is the point of Paul's great statement, Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What he means by that, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, is that, as we've talked about before, if a human judge had somebody standing before them who, without any shadow of a doubt, was guilty of his crimes... There was evidence galore. Eyewitnesses lined up. And there was no doubt that he was guilty. And the human judge said, you are guilty. But it's okay, you can go. There's no justice there. That's, that's not justice. God abides by justice. He is the definition of justice. So that's what he's meaning when he says That debt, our sin stood against us with legal demands. For God to be a just God, He must punish our sins. That sin stood against you. How did He cancel that debt? When we read of the crucifixion of Christ, we read where He says, It is finished. And it says He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Just real quick, notice he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. He willingly gave it. But I want to focus on the it is finished. He doesn't mean, okay, I'm about to die. That was actually a legal commercial term that means the debt is paid. When you were interacting in business with a businessman and you owed him something, when you would pay off that debt, he would stamp tetelestai on your debt and that word is what Jesus used to tell us die it meant the debt is paid in full in other words you no longer owed anything on that debt so God didn't cancel your debt simply because he loves you God didn't cancel your debt simply because he's a merciful God for then he would no longer be a just God either your debt has been canceled your debt has been paid only because of what Jesus did On the cross. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone pass judgment on you. You have been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. And here's the question I want to leave you with today. You know, today, We all shout Hosanna together here. After all, it's Palm Sunday. But what will you be shouting tomorrow? What will you be shouting tomorrow or the next day? Will you still be shouting Hosanna, recognizing Jesus as your king, as your savior, as your high priest? Or will your shouts of Hosanna after today diminish into silence, as the worries of life, as the desires of the flesh, start to take priority. We know that the cries of Hosanna, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, descended into shouts of, crucify him, by the end of the week. So even worse, will you lump yourself in with that crowd, who by week's end were rejecting Jesus as their King and Savior? You might not shout out, crucify him, but your rejection of him as Savior says the same nevertheless. We sang Hosanna this morning. We were all saying it. But was it real for you? Or was it the words of a song that you were singing? Were you truly crying out, enjoy, Hosanna, Savior, Or tomorrow, will there no longer be that cry of Hosanna? But will it be back to life as normal until next Sunday? I want to encourage you, as Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourself. Where do you truly stand with God this morning? You know, those people who, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, were crying out Hosanna, he was their Focus. When it talks about them laying their coats on the road, keep in mind they didn't have a target or a coles to go buy clothes from. They didn't have a wardrobe full of clothing. Most often in those days, a person would only have one coat, and they were so overwhelmed at the appearance of their king they took their only coat and they laid it in the dirt so their king's feet wouldn't get dirty. So that dust wouldn't be stirred up as he went by. Because that's how valuable, precious, and excited they were about their Savior. Is that your heart toward your Savior, your high priest, your king, that you will lay your best on the road for him? That's an everyday thing. It's an everyday thing. And when we're not willing to lay down our best daily, then it's a sign we are well on our way to the shouts of crucify him on Friday. What does your life look like? Not just today when you sing Hosanna. But tomorrow and the next day, is it still Hosanna? Or is it life as usual? Let's pray as the praise team comes up. Father, I thank you. That even though the way to you was barred, you saw fit to say it was not yet open. And then Christ appeared. I thank you that you didn't leave us separated from you. I thank you that you made a way for that veil to be torn. That you made a way for sinful man and holy God to have intimate fellowship Father I pray that you will help us to search our hearts this morning do we shout Hosanna because it is true to us or because it's Palm Sunday and that's what you sing Father where do you find us this morning And Father, by your grace, I pray that if you find us simply shouting Hosanna because that's the song we sing today, that you will work in our hearts and our lives to truly reveal to us the incredible gift that Christ is to us. That when Christ appeared is a cause for the greatest of celebrations. The Father, we don't have to look forward to a Messiah appearing. We can look back to that he has appeared. Father, work in our hearts to be more excited about that than we are about a ball game. Than we are about the buck that we got. Than we are about the deal that we got on our new coat. God, may you be more Precious to us. May you be more exciting to us. Than any paltry, worthless, passing thing of this life. May we find our reality and our identity in who you are. And therefore, every day of our lives, Father, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Savior, come and save us. God, to you be the glory and honor and praise that you so rightly and richly deserve. In your name, Father.
0: Thanks for joining our online service. We pray it was a blessing to you. We are grateful for these resources God has provided, especially in this time of pandemic and separation. If you'd like to find out more about EWC and give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.